This podcast is marketing material for a South Africa investment professional only. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining the monthly Schroeder's Global Markets Perspective podcast. My name is Philip Robotham. I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Williams, investment director in our global value equities team, and soon to jump on a plane and head down and see us down here. Uh, Hello, Andrew. Hello, Phil. How are you doing? Very well, very well. Looking forward to having you here, sir. I'm very Um, excited. I'm very excited. Andrew's team managed two Section 65 approved funds available here in South Africa, a Global Recovery Fund and the Global Sustainable Value Fund, uh, available on major platforms across this country. For more information on the funds or for any questions following areas discussed during this podcast, please do not hesitate to contact your usual Schroeder's representative. Uh, As always, we're going to spend the next 15 minutes or so discussing the outlook for global equities with, and I'm sure you've sussed this out already, a strong tilt towards value. Um, Okay, Andrew, uh, perhaps we can start with a recap of global equities performance this year. um, And then obviously with a particular tilt from your perspective of the value versus growth divergence that we've seen in recent past. Thanks, Phil. I like that you started with the disclaimer that there will be a strong tilt towards value, um, which is what you should always expect from the, from the value team at Schroeder's. We are unashamedly uh, deep value. Um, I mean, great opening question, and it's pretty extraordinary, right? The, 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 the financial market uh, or markets around the world continue to march on, um, yet we've had a major financial shock in the first half of this year with What's been going in regional banks uh, in the US and the spillover into Credit Suisse, which we might we might touch on, um, uh, markets get higher still. Um, and some of the really arresting stats are actually on the on the other side of the coin, in, in some of those growth names, which are just you know going to the moon. Uh, I had a look at at some of our our fund attribution year to date, and relative to the benchmark, what's cost us is, is not holding a lot of a lot of those growth names. You've got names like Nvidia, which is up more than 100% this year. Meta's up more than 100% this year, both more than doubled you know, in the last five months. Alphabet up 40%, Amazon up 40%, Apple, you know, the biggest stock of them all, up over 30% year to date. You know, Apple's now bigger than the, than the entire market cap of, uh, of, the, of the 2,000 smaller companies in the, in the US, the Russell 2000 index. Again, it's bigger than the entire FTSE 100. Um, these are pretty extraordinary moves from some massive companies but what does that really mean? Well, generally, a very narrow market, a stock market led by just a few names, just led by the fangs, does, isn't a very healthy one. Um, you know, cap weighted indices massively outperforming and equal weighted tends to be a signal that there's something awry and it tends not to end well. And it's particularly unnerving in a market that's rising. So that's been. I guess a kind of a worry, and then over a year to date, but interesting values actually held up pretty well. Um, you know, last year uh, value investors were given a, a massive opportunity to to lean into some cyclical uh, cyclical businesses, all of which were pretty decent balance sheets, uh, and they came they come roaring back over the last kind of twelve months um, as as well. And I do think it's just a highlight an example of you know, how how much volatility there has been in the market and if you can take an unemotional view you can still make quite a lot of money there and mid last year you know there was a recession absolutely nailed on that's why all those cyclicals sold off then it turned out actually you know maybe that recession 
isn't going to come as quickly as people expected. Um, I think what we what we can say, and particularly broadening out over uh, over year to date, and perhaps looking back over kind of 12, 18, 24 months, um, is something that's definitely been good for value investors is volatility, more volatility in the market. You know, uncertainty tends to be very, very good for our investment style. We know how tough it was for value for, you know, for nigh on a decade. You know, when the market operated in that environment where it was, you know, protected by quantitative easing, uh, uh, QE, sorry, um, you know, rates that were lower for longer, and then that went into lower forever through COVID, uh, very low low volatility. That is hard for us to find new investment opportunities and performance for value suffers as a consequence. On the flip side of that, when there are emotions in the market, when uncertainty increases, when, you know, fear you know, or greed takes over and share prices move you know, by more than is justified by fundamentals, um, opportunities you know, are created. And I think we're actually for value. We're in a great spot today. Because just being guided by valuation, there is a vast breadth of opportunities in value, far broader than there was, you know, going into the COVID crisis, for example. Um, I think that's uh, really important today. We're not beholden to, to one macroeconomic outcome. And despite the, the very different journeys that value and growth have had over the past past few years, value is is, is doing a bit better. Um, but, you know, it's... Uh, there's a long way to go in the war, I should say. Well, at the moment, it feels like that, you know, growth is perhaps gaining the upper hand, certainly over the last couple of months, at least. I'm just, just picking up on your comments then about the re-ratings that you've seen since some of those massive names that you also mentioned um, in that answer. Um, yeah. Have any of the fundamentals been supporting those re-ratings that you've seen this year? And to add to the question, given the style or the opportunity set that you guys look at, cheapest 20% global equity markets, as your definition of core or deep value, and were any of those big names uh, featuring in your analysis last year? So the answer is 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 yes, they did. I mean, they've certainly they've they've, they've come a long way, um, and the some of those big tech names that were flirting with the cheapest twenty percent are no longer uh, near that anymore. Um, I think where we were able to find opportunities in tech um, have been. Not in the fangs, but there are some some other similar businesses uh, in the portfolio. And to to give you an example, you know the the tech weight you know, in the portfolio has increased quite you know significantly. And things like the I spoke a little about about cyclical pressures. Things like semiconductors, um, which are you know have very cyclical um, earnings. And last year, you know, had a sort of double whammy where you know a lot of capacity. That was coming online uh, at a time when you know, demand was being completely destroyed by, by fears of a recession. That gave a very attractive entry point uh, to some of those names. Um, but you know, I think more broadly and longer term, I'd say there is no such thing as sort of a value stock or a growth stock forever. They move around. The, the, the reason why active management works and works so well is because there is a rebalancing effect going on from for you know, in between value and growth the entire time. It's important to to be active and buy you know, businesses when they are on sale. And, you know, if you think back to the year 2000.com, there were, you know, uh, eight of the 10 largest companies in the world were IT businesses. The value team have owned a lot of those. 
just not at the peaks. We've, you know, we've owned Microsoft, we've owned uh, HP, we've owned lots of these absolute, uh, you know, these kind of tech behemoths. And I would suggest that at some point in the future, we might get to own some of these names I've mentioned as well. On the other side, some of the fangs, the Netflix of this world, not at the valuations they trade at today, but eventually they'll come into the pocket. But they've certainly, you know, roared away uh, year to date. While they may have been there or thereabouts last year, they weren't. They certainly weren't quite cheap enough. Um, now you might call that a bit of a mistake, given given some of the, the, those performance numbers. But we don't believe they're justified by their valuations, and ultimately, you know financial mass eventually does its thing and, and and something will happen to bring those bring those share prices back down to earth fantastic thanks uh, andrew just moving on then to your view or your expectations from here you've mentioned a, you know a few opportunities that um, that you've been uh, increasing value uh, increasing opportunities in within, within the portfolio you, you mentioned the increase in the way for tech for example the statement that we're seeing at a lot of our conferences that we're attending at the moment is, you know, value has had a great run. And if you look at the three-year figures, it has had a very good run. Um, what are your expectations or outlook from here, given, you know, a couple of those points that you've just mentioned about more broader opportunity sets and still fishing in this cheapest 20%, but that cheapest 20% is probably more expensive today than it was three years ago. Yeah, so... It's interesting because you say, you know, value manager talking on the podcast, you're going to say value is always cheap. But I wouldn't say that. Value value is not. And by this definition, I'm talking about value being, let's say, the cheaper half of the market. There are times when value is cheap relative to its own history and times where, where it's more expensive. Today is, is, is actually quite extraordinary because, yes, value has had a better time of it over the last couple of years. But relative um to its history it remains very 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 cheap today um so if you look at let's say you take msci world and you look at the premium uh, of value to growth on, on a bunch of different metrics um the discount of value to growth is still um you know significantly below you know, it, it's uh, it, it's long-term median and interestingly if you can kind of trace a line back to see what's the premium and discount been over time and you can see, well, when, whenever there's been a really extreme dislocation, you tend to get a snapback to the median. Like, you know, growth doesn't, these valuations just can't you know, stretch apart forever. And the way I like to think about this is like an elastic band. And as they get further and further away from, from, from the long-term average, that elastic band stretches and stretches and stretches and gets, it gets so tight, you know, it, it currently, it, you know, it snaps back very quickly. And when it snaps back, the return, you know, the returns that you can get could be genuinely um pretty extraordinary if you go back to dot com it was pretty extreme um and the snapback for value you know led to some extraordinary returns for, for those focused on a value style irrespective of the fact the market didn't really do very much for five years you know in value you made you know, two or three times your money where we are today is the market that that dislocation between value and growth on a relative basis got more extreme than at dot com and actually, if you look at this on a chart, you can see, OK, it's that gap has narrowed a bit in the last couple of years as value's done better. But it is still as extreme today as it was at the peak of dot com. So there's a long way to go on a relative basis. Now, you might say, oh, OK, fair enough. But you know, what about absolute? Now, on absolute basis, value is looking very attractive as well, actually. And as I said, this is not always the case. So if you look at the cheapest quintile of MSCI world, 
on a Schiller PE or a um, Graham and Dobb PE, essentially a, a, a 10-year cyclically adjusted price earnings multiple. That cheapest quintile is currently trading around 25% um, below its long-term average. So about 10 times Schiller, you know, Schiller PE or a CAPE today versus the, the long-term average of 13 times. And as I said, there have been years when that wasn't the case. When that was you know, 05, 06, 07, value actually on an absolute basis got expensive. I mean, not that expensive, but you know, expensive versus its history. So you know, both on a, on a, uh, a relative basis, I think there's a long way to go. On absolute basis, value's looking pretty cheap. Um, the other kind of nuance there, as well as if you split MSCI World into quintiles, actually focusing on that cheapest quintile, so just the cheapest 20%, which is what we focus on as deep value managers, that quintile is very cheap relative to its long-term history. Um, whereas if you just go up one quintile, so let's say the cheapest 20 to 40%, it's actually looking relatively expensive versus its history. So there's a real opportunity today for, for value to find as the cheap half of the market, but even more so for value to find as deep value. Um, and to kind of come to a question there about the breadth of opportunity, there is, you know, and you can kind of see this in our sector positioning, there is genuinely far more breadth of opportunity today than there was, you know, coming into the coming into COVID. Coming into COVID, value pointed you towards banks, energy, materials. Today, the spread is far broader than that. Um, we've been able to increase rates in Japan, for example. The number of stocks has gone from, you know, the 30s to the 50s. It's a reflection of that. So I think all of those things make me kind of very, um, yeah, well, as bullish as the value value manager can ever be. Um, but, you know, but uh, on a kind of three to five year view, think we're in a very good place as value. The, the one sort of caveat I put in there, or even kind of Bible aware notice, is these things never happen in a straight line. I think, you know, just what's happened in March, you know, in April has proven that. Um, and actually, there's some, some work done on, on the US equity market showing the, um, the, the, that some of the worst months for value have come in the biggest secular values that we've seen. So in, in, in the early 70s and, and after dot-com, which just shows you that there's a lot of noise in the short term. It's supposed to be a bumpy ride. I often think, you know, you get those stickers on your wing mirrors saying, you know, objects in the rear view mirror might appear closer than they actually are. I always think when we look back at the final history, the financial history, everything looks smooth. Um, it looks smoother than it actually is. It's just a reminder at times like this to, to to uh to kind of stay the course and kind of stick to your knitting because if you do that the uh, the returns can be very positive but that's not to say we're not going to have some you know horrible months and quarters over the next you know three five ten years but i think on that view value is is very well positioned to outperform great great um just pick up a couple of those points that i want to talk about banks um obviously your current allocation to the um to the financial sector is still slightly overweight to your reference benchmark. Um, I don't know from that split exactly what that is in, in terms of the specific banks, so that'd be interesting to hear and your view, especially given the turmoil that we've recently seen in that sector um, and also now in Europe with uh, you know, following Credit Suisse. But before we just jump on that um, topic, the noise that's going on in the markets just now, we, we can't avoid the question here about the US debt ceiling. Um, the X date is, well, next week. Um, the US, incredibly unlikely to, to go into a technical default. Is this just short-term noise, more short-term unwelcome noise 
How are you guys um, viewing that right now? I think the first thing to say is that, you know, a true default for the US would be a completely unprecedented event, you know, with, with far-reaching ramifications for, for markets. Um, markets are off in the last couple of days. You're seeing arresting headlines like, you know, short-term yields, you know, hitting 20-year highs as that default looms. Um, I saw one quote from a market commentator saying, you know, optimism over the debt ceiling is getting tired out. Now, I'm not quite sure what, what that means, but uh, I think that's negative. Um, but I think the thing to say is I don't want to make light of what's going on in the US like at all on the debt ceiling. I think it's important that we're conscious of, of what's going on, um, uh, but we don't try and position p- portfolios for any particular outcome. I think because you know, even if our kind of experience tells us uh, and history tells us that even if you get you know, the, the macro right, even if you forecast for, forecast that right, the impact on share prices is even harder to forecast still. You know, I think last year and COVID, if that's taught us anything, we don't know what, what's around the corner. Um, and, you know, you can have things like last year, like, you know, huge blow ups in crypto, you know, all, all these sorts of things happening. And yet markets have, have reacted in very different and strange ways to each one of each one of those events. So it's not it's not directly in our sphere of what we think we're good at. What we think we're good at is focusing on company fundamentals, focusing bottom up, ensuring our companies have you know, decent, decent balance sheet strength and, uh, and enough balance sheet strength to see them through a range of macroeconomic outcomes. And ultimately, you know, this is this will come to pass in the next in the next week or two. But we just remember that you know, ultimately people and the market tends to have a pretty short memory. People tend to assume that. That, that when value's outperforming more recently, it's uh, it's been a bit of an aberration that some, somehow normal service is, is, is going to resume. We don't necessarily believe that's the case. I think it's something like, to kind of come back to your question directly on the, on the debt ceiling, I think it's just important to be conscious and aware that something may or may not happen. And there's thousands of column inches being written on this. The experience has been that something will be resolved and, and, and it'll be raised. But ultimately, it's very difficult to model those outcomes. So it's actually better just to focus on the businesses that you hold, cash flows that they earn, and know that over the longer term, it's valuations that matter in terms of long-term returns from the portfolio. Great. And would you mind just touching then on your um, financials positions and expectations from that sector briefly before we jump onto the, the final question? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think that when people think of, of value, they do often think of banks and uh, financials. And I think there's no doubt that financials remain cheap and investors can still make you know, a lot of money out of, out of those positions. I think it's important to, to, to be conscious of, of what's happened actually in the, in, in the financial space over the last couple of years. Um, and, and actually to note that your know, banks have been doing pretty well. So the, the the financials weight in the portfolio um, has come down, uh, you know, it's come down significantly. So banks have come down uh, quite a lot. And if I compare that our weighting to to financials um, uh, today versus coming into COVID, it's roughly halved from around thirty you percent know, to around fifty percent. Some of the top performers in the portfolio um, of the last you know twelve to eighteen months have been the financials um, and, and the banks in particular. You know, we've seen lots of these businesses buying back stock, you know, issuing special dividends, 
Um, share prices have gone up, as I said, more, more than 100% in, in, in some cases. Um, lots of uh, the cost cutting that was able to was sort of turbocharged, I should say, throughout COVID, when revenues kind of returned and net interest margins were obviously a huge help for this with, with interest rates finally rising last year. We've seen a huge amount of that dropping straight through to the bottom line. And you've seen that in earnings this year. You've seen you know, the, the financials doing pretty well. Um, you know, it's pretty extraordinary that they're among the kind of top performers. And that's despite them having a more difficult march. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's a sector that, that remains much maligned. It's still actually very attractive. Um, our weight, weight towards the banks is much lower than it was. That's not because they're any less attractive. Um, it's because they did very well. Um, and some of those that were trading significantly below book value got back towards book value. So it was an opportunity to take profits. Today, actually, it's more a case of looking at some of those again and where you might want to add to them as they pull back. I think the other point to make very briefly is there is a very big difference between what's happened in the US regional banks to the European banks that we hold. Um, we don't have enough time to go into kind of Credit Suisse in detail there, but there are some very kind of unique challenges that, that Credit Suisse faced as well. I think more broadly, it is just worthwhile saying when you're talking about the banks is that the end of the era of free money will cause some businesses and business models to fail. You have to be conscious that banks are exposed, you know, will be exposed to that in, in one way or another. But ultimately, you know, we're very comfortable with the bank's weight but it is lower, and that's really just because of the breadth of opportunities elsewhere. Right. And finally, uh, just touching on sustainability, seeing as I mentioned the Global Sustainable Value Fund in the introduction uh, earlier, um, clearly at Schroeder's, we're a long way down this journey, and we're getting ever closer to sustainability or ESG becoming a standard part of every client conversation. And um, How is this strategy different to the Global Recovery or Core Value Fund? I'll start by saying how it's not different. That focus on value in the Global Sustainable Fund is identical to the focus on value in the, in the, in the Global Recovery Fund. When we were putting the strategy together, the idea, the genesis was a marriage of what we, what we do and have done very well for our clients in terms of our, our value focus. But was there a way to do that while focusing purely on ESG leaders? Um, and was there a way to uh, also add in your additional layers of engagement to ensure that those companies are improving on those on those ESG credentials? So the, the real difference between the two strategies is there are some uh, negative exclusions uh, at the very front end. So in the sustainable value strategy, um, it cannot invest in you know, alcohol, tobacco, mining or you know, energy or any of the other sin sectors. But really importantly, that's just the first step. That's sort of table stakes, if you like. When I say we only invest in ESG leaders, those are companies that must provide you know, a positive societal benefit. What we mean by that is the company must do more good than harm. So essentially have a, a net positive impact on society and the environment. And we measure that using a tool, a tool at Schroeder's called Sustainix, which essentially puts a dollar value on the, um, uh, on the externalities uh, that a company either creates or kind of detracts from society. But really importantly, it also has to be best in class versus its peers. So that business must have an ESG leading profile versus its peers. And we have a number of tools to enable us to look at that. So I think those, those things are really important. I think 
the core message really is you certainly definitely can have a portfolio that is very much a value portfolio. You can screen out some of those areas that are, that are completely unpalatable, but actually that still leaves a very large uh, opportunity set of businesses that are you know, 100% value, but are also ESG leading, both in terms of on, in absolute terms, but also uh, versus their peers. Thank you very much, um, Andy. So in summary, a, a massive opportunity still remains. I like the, um, uh, I suppose we all in this industry like the stat, but using the Schiller PE ratio that you quoted earlier, the cheapest quintile of the value market is currently trading 25% below its long-term average. So there's plenty of reasons to be cheerful in the value in the value sector. So um, thank you very much for your time today, Andrew. Much appreciated. To our listeners, thank you for joining us and we look forward to engaging with you further uh, in 2023. It's an absolute pleasure to join you on the podcast today uh, and I look forward to seeing uh, as many of you as possible in South Africa in due course. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. Schroeder's Investment Management Limited is an authorized financial services provider. FSP number 48998, registration number 01893220, incorporated in England and Wales. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation. Any funds, services or products mentioned might not be appropriate for all listeners. Please speak to a financial advisor if you are unsure as to the suitability of any investment. The forecasts included are not guaranteed. They are provided only as at the date of issue and should not be relied upon. Our forecasts are based on our own assumptions which may change. We accept no responsibility for any errors of fact or opinion and assume no obligation to provide you with any changes to our assumptions or forecasts. Forecasts and assumptions may be affected by external economic or other factors. Disclosures and risk factors. Collective investment schemes are generally medium to long-term investments. The value of participatory interest or the investments may go down as well as up. Past performance is not necessarily a guide to future performance. Collective investment schemes are traded at ruling prices and can engage in borrowing and script lending. A schedule of fees and charges and maximum commissions is available on request from the manager. The manager does not provide any guarantee either with respect to the capital or the return of a portfolio. The manager has a right to close the portfolio to new investors in order to manage it more efficiently in accordance with its mandate.